0: G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we're going to take a look at the story of an Aboriginal warrior from the Kimberley, Jandamara. Jandamara was a Bunuba man who has been called both an outlaw and a hero. It's the story of conflict between the Indigenous peoples and the new Europeans coming to Australia. A chapter in what we more lately call the Frontier Wars. Now, I usually look for stories where I can find a bit of humour and some quirky info to share, but for this episode, there was not a lot that I could make light of. It's a great story, but also a sombre and confronting one, so it departs a little from my usual tone, a bit darker perhaps. So it's not the most comfortable reflection on our past to listen to, but it is part of our history, and it should be better known and considered. Jandamara was a very impressive man, and a beacon of hope for his people, so it's a legendary tale. The Bunuba people live in a truly spectacular part of the country. You might get a better sense of the awesome locations being discussed if you can look up some of the places I refer to. This might be a good episode to check out the supporting material that I put on the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. That's histories spelt with an I-E-S. I'll be using some Aboriginal place names, and the names of Bunaba people, all of whom in this story will have passed on. I know there is some cultural sensitivity to mentioning the names of the dead, so Indigenous listeners, you should be aware of that. Also, I don't usually make any apologies for my pronunciation of various less familiar words. I think it's a given that I will always try my best, but that sometimes the result may be less than perfect. (laughs) If I do stumble, the generous listener will note that I've made an attempt and simply move on. (laughs) But the many Indigenous names for this story have been a challenge for me, so on this occasion I will just apologise up front for my shortcomings there. Let's focus on the story instead. Finally, I just wanted to note two references I relied on heavily for this episode, which I believe are two of the most excellent resources for the topic. Both are very high quality, well-researched and relatively recent. One is the SBS TV series and accompanying book called First Australians. The other is a comprehensive work focusing specifically on these Kimberley confrontations called Jandamara and the Boonaba Resistance. Written by historian Howard Peterson, with assistance from Boonaba elder Banjo Wurrenmura. Most Australians will already know that elders in the indigenous culture are the repositories of their history and knowledge in a culture with an oral tradition. Peterson had the best of both worlds in comprehensively interrogating the written records, gathering evidence in one culture, and then getting expert guidance on the history coming from the Boonaba people themselves. As I relied so heavily on Pederson's work, I just wanted to acknowledge that up front. Anyone wanting a deeper understanding of the Jandamara story and the Kimberley history would do well to start with Pederson's book. As always, details of these and other references, links and images will be available on the Australian Histories podcast website. So, let's prepare to take our minds to the Kimberley in Western Australia. Towards the end of the 19th century, and hear about one outbreak in the Frontier Wars that brought Jandamara to the attention of all of Western Australia. Just to start this story at its very beginning, and set the scene, especially for my international listeners, Before the arrival of the Europeans on the Australian continent, from about 1500 onwards, our first Australians inhabited the entire continent of Australia for more than 65,000 years. Our Aboriginal inhabitants consisted of a great many identifiably different cultural clans and language groups, each occupying specific regions, and I will put a link to maps that can give you an idea of the number of different groups sharing the country. While differing perhaps in language, local custom, origin stories or some cultural practices, they generally shared a similar set of spiritual and cultural beliefs that is quite different to the basic cultural and religious understandings of Europeans. To simplify exceedingly, the indigenous people developed and maintained a relationship to the land and the country they came from, in which the people have a responsibility, a deep spiritual and practical obligation to care for, manage and share their lands and its resources amongst their people. Food gathering and hunting is governed by strict religious, seasonal and kinship principles, which ensure the food supply was sustainable over time, shared and used in moderation. This was different to, and I'm generalising greatly here again, the European tradition, which revolves around ownership of land. Exclusive rights to use, exploit and enclose land for individual economic advantage. So, with such differing and incompatible desires, when the Europeans arrived in Australia to stay, conflict amongst the first and the newer Australians was virtually inevitable. For most of the 20th century, Australians were largely taught that Captain James Cook, on his endeavour voyage, quote-unquote, discovered the east coast of Australia in 1770. The indigenous, having actually discovered it first, may have cried fake news a lot louder and more aggressively if they'd been aware of what that visit from the strange white men meant. (laughs) Cook's voyage was initially conceived as a scientific exploration of the Southern Hemisphere, mainly to record the transit of Venus from Tahiti, and was commissioned by the Royal Society of London. But the British Admiralty saw an opportunity to expand their knowledge and influence in that part of the world too, if they became involved, and thus they partnered and part-funded the expedition, quietly giving Cook their own set of secret objectives to be undertaken post-Venus transit. His sealed orders from the Admiralty instructed him to explore further southward, as far as 40 degrees south, in search of the southern landmass they knew was there somewhere. If he were to find such a land, he was further instructed, quote, with the consent of the natives, to take possession of convenient situations in the country, in the name of the King of Great Britain, unquote. Those consenting natives would then become subjects of the King of England, one assumes, like Cook was himself, quote, or, if you find the country uninhabited, take possession, unquote. Cook did encounter the southeast coast of the Australian continent, and in April 1770 he came ashore at Botany Bay, to a rather hostile reception from the said natives, noting in his journal, quote, As we approached the shore, they all made off except two men, who seemed resolved to oppose our landing, Continuing further northwards, mapping that east coast, he again went ashore in August 1770 at Possession Island, just around the tip of Cape York in far north Queensland. Though he and the crew had further contact with and plenty of evidence during their travels of the first Australians inhabiting the country right along that east coast, on Possession Island he came ashore and formally claimed the entire country that he had surveyed from the coast, declaring it to be a British possession, as if it were uninhabited. There was no consultation or meaningful interaction with the existing inhabitants that might indicate consent to his annexing of their country, as required in his orders. The British would defend that claim under a legal term, terra nullius, empty land. Just pretend there was no one already possessing the land and then consent, treaty or other negotiations are not required. Though Aboriginal people have been continually called blacks right into the present day, we must now assume in 1770 they were in fact actually invisible to the British. (laughs) A few years later, in 1788, the First Fleet arrived to set up a British penal colony in the Sydney area. The Sydney region was already actually quite heavily populated by the first Australians, and with the British arrivals appearing to settle in to stay, this was the beginning of uncomfortable and unfortunate relations between the colonising whites and the somewhat shocked locals. So that's how colonisation began, and it's a tricky story, both legally and morally, For a long time, the whole uncomfortable business was largely ignored, but in recent decades there has been a lot more interest in uncovering those parts of our history. Though many people would prefer to assume that the colonisers took over the land gradually, with some level of acceptance and consent, that is in fact far from the truth. We are now much more aware of the evidence and research recording the extent of the resistance shown by the indigenous peoples, right through what we now call the frontier wars, These interactions were frequently ruthless and violent. While there may not have been a formal declaration between the Whites and the Aboriginals, as was familiar in the First and Second World Wars, for example, in many regions there was the intent to kill, dispossess and conquer those resisting colonisation. But we will leave those early days and the East Coast behind for another day, and move to Western Australia's Kimberley, where White settlers there generally came in quite a bit later, in the 1880s, Perth, in the south, had been settled in 1829, and various areas to the north had been explored over the following decades. The Kimberley region, an area covering nearly half a million square kilometres that's around 165,000 square miles in the northern quarter of Western Australia, was very productive and attractive country. Though made up of the ancient red soils of outback Australia, regular downfalls through the rainy season fed reliable water sources, both above and below ground. This ensured it provided abundant food for the indigenous peoples, with a vast array of plants and animals available to them all year. So it was able to sustain high populations, making it one of the most densely inhabited regions in the country. The people of the Kimberley living comfortable and healthy lives there. The Bunuba were just one of nearly 50 language groups in the region. Of course, the abundant grasses and reliable waterholes also made the area an attractive prospect for the Europeans, who could see an opportunity to run lucrative stock businesses there. Such stock runs, though, while bringing financial returns to the stockholders, would place pressure on the environmental resources, force out the native animals and damage the waterholes, completely changing the easy life that Bunuba and others previously had on their country in the past. The Kimberley region is absolutely spectacular. Vast escarpments broken by ancient weather-carved falls and rock formations, sparse vegetation cover or sometimes lush greenery atop vivid red and yellow sandstone cliffs, or the grey Devonian-era limestone ranges. People might be familiar with the striped, wind-carved domes of the Bungle Bungles in Pernalulu National Park, the horizontal falls on the Buccaneer Archipelago, the strange and fascinating Boab trees dotted along the Gib River Road, and the beautiful Fitzroy River with its unbelievably crumpled and folded rock sections, all these found in the Kimberley. The Vunabha people belong to the country around Milawindi, the King Leopold Ranges, the Fitzroy Crossing area, Malaraba, the Erskine Ranges, the Napier Range, and includes Bandilnagan, or Winjana Gorge, and Barra, or Tunnel Creek. A paper describing the geology of the region notes that Miliwindi, King Leopold Ranges, are the quote, "...remnants of massive mountains thrown up by the collision of the Kimberley section with the Pilbara and Yilgarn 1,800 million years ago." The limestone geology of the Oscar, Napier, Emmanuel, and Pilara Ranges are the remains of a vast coral reef, similar in scale to the Great Barrier Reef that existed nearly 400 million years ago now high and dry in the landscape, unquote. These days the area is a magnet to those on the tourist trail through the Kimberley. Vast and stunningly beautiful, dotted with the friendly baobab trees and yellow-flowered kapok, the gorges are home to relatively docile freshwater crocodiles, stunning birds and other wonderful wildlife. Kinane suggests around 30,000 travellers pass through in the dry season. Pedersen reminds us that the Kimberley covers an area larger than the entire United Kingdom and was at that time the last non-desert region to be colonised. By the 1880s, the Kimberley region was being surveyed for use as pastoral land and soon more than 44 million acres had been granted to 77 people, initially stocking the land with sheep to the west of Milawandi, the King Leopold range, and later bringing in cattle, mainly to the east of the ranges the government simply parcelled up the surveyed land for sale or lease to the pastoralists ignoring the existing occupation and use of the land by the indigenous i don't understand the thinking behind that except that the natives were simply expected to either move along out of sight or move on to the new stations and work as free labour perhaps as mentioned earlier the density of the aboriginal populations in the kimberley was greater than many other areas in australia and so violent clashes had been taking place ever since white men ventured into the area. A group of Bunuba men, armed with spears and clearly demanding those incomers move off their land, confronted two potential pastoralists scouting there early in the 1880s. And they did indeed leave the area, guns blazing and terrified. But when Lucan and Forrester arrived soon afterwards with their stock, initially they reported little contact with the natives. Determined to set up their stock stations on the land that they had purchased, they did hope to have cordial relations with the local Bunuba and the neighbouring people for their own safety and to facilitate recruitment of a workforce for the stations, and initial interactions were amicable. However, Forrester settled his homestead, Limalura, very close to the important cultural sites like Bandilnagan, that's Windjana Gorge. And this would be problematic. In the indigenous culture, everything is to be shared. When the white settlers, now on their lands, failed to share their obvious bounty, the locals simply came in and took what they wanted, including the sheep, which seemed no different to taking any other food from the land as they had done for millennia. But to the white men, this was out-and-out theft. Already by June of 1885, they thought that the Boonamah needed to be taught a lesson, and one of the station workers shot an Aboriginal man, Alamara, an important elder in the group, who was strolling away with some items he had taken. Though he recovered from the wound, relations afterwards took a turn for the worse, by October shifting to open hostility. The lack of understanding between the two groups about ownership of things was one difficult element. So Winjana Gorge was a sacred place used by the indigenous groups for ceremonies, with the surrounding caves being memorial and burial sites for their ancestors. While they were interested in the goods and the food the pastoralists might supply them, they soon saw that the white settlers did not respect the land or their sacred sites, despite being warned that the Aboriginal law demanded punishment, including serious injury or death, for anyone who failed to do so. As Peterson noted, quote, The settlers dismissed Bunuba warnings about the spiritual significance of certain places as primitive superstitions, unquote. Obviously, this cultural arrogance would contribute further to the violent clashes. It's unfortunate, because with a bit of empathy, those pastoralists and stockmen might easily have imagined how they might feel about foreigners coming in and desecrating the places sacred to them – an important war cemetery, for example, or trashing their ancient family chapel and letting the cows shelter in there. When the stockmen then built sheepyards and enclosed a sacred ceremonial site and waterhole, the Boonaba responded intending to punish and to expel the men, attacking them with spears. Firing shots in return, the stockmen escaped back to Limalura homestead. At the same time, though, Alamara had led a raid on the homestead, and the cook there had received a spear wound to his arm, before the Bunuba men retreated, again under fire. Well, that would not do. The following day, Forrester led a party out in search of the warriors, and at the edge of the limestone escarpment they were again confronted by an armed group of Boonaboo men, gesturing harm if the white men did not leave the area. They fired on the mob, injuring at least one Boonaboo man. The remainder of the group then dispersed into the nearby limestone shards and continued to hurl rocks and weapons down on the men from their hiding places, hitting Forester and drawing blood. Forrester was incensed by the aggressive resistance to their presence by Aldemara and his warriors, and he sent word to Derby, the regional township on the coast, demanding police assistance. Throughout the Kimberley, as the pastoralists moved in, bringing conflict and disruption to what was once an easy life, many Indigenous families yielded, and they moved to live on what Peterson described as the feudal safety of the black camps near the stations receiving tobacco and flour in return for station work. When Jan de Mara was about 11 years old, he moved with his mother to live on Lucan's Leonard River Station, just to the west of Forrester's Limalura. Being smart and athletic, Lucan and the stockhands were keen to mould him into a useful station hand for the property, and as he grew, like many others in that situation, he began the almost impossible task of trying to live across two opposing cultures, trying to do right by both, but lacking the full acceptance that would make the task achievable. Lucan had named him Pigeon, and this was the name that he was known by in the white world. As he grew, he became a very accomplished and impressive worker, both as a stockman and a shearer, and was mentored in the station work by another Aboriginal stockman, known as Jim Crow. Crow already had a long and difficult association with the pastoralists and police, having years before been jailed on Rottnest Island down south for the murder of a man during a drunken brawl. As part of his sentence, he was pressed into service with the Roeburn police, near modern-day Caratha. There, he was instrumental in hunting down and killing, on behalf of the police service, many Aboriginal, quote, stock killers and escapees from purling and pastoral masters, unquote before pitching up as a station-hand at Leonard River Station on his release. Not many Aboriginals were allowed to use guns, but Crow, having been in the service of the police, had experience and was skilled with firearms, and he taught Jandamara how to use a rifle. Jandamara caught on quickly and became an exceptional marksman, excelling at the skills useful to the white men. But it would have been increasingly clear to him that he could never be part of that society on any equal footing, As he grew, he approached very important cultural milestones in his own culture. Male children stay in the company of their mothers and the women in the group until they approach puberty, when they must prepare for taking on the responsibilities, secrets and privileges of becoming a man. For the Bhunabha, the journey to manhood lay in extended learning over time and a series of ceremonial rites of the utmost importance and reverence. To become a man, a boy must live with the men, on country, learn the cultural laws and the ancient knowledge and skills being led through those understandings by the revered elders. These teachings would produce a much deeper bond with his spirit country into manhood. The ceremonies and deep links to the past and the land are things that the Europeans could not fathom, and they are still today a mystery to many non-indigenous people. In a huge and clearly unnuanced generalisation, in the Christian tradition, the world is given to man for his use. In the Aboriginal tradition, man belongs to his country, and he has a responsibility to tend and respect it while living in it. We can see, and did see immediately the European pastoralists came in, the differences in these approaches causing inevitable conflicts on those grounds alone. When the time came for Jandamara to leave the station camp and begin his initiation process with the men, learning the significant places cultural taboos, the male law of his people, the white men could only see that he was willfully deserting his work. Lucan saw no good coming from the boys returning to their native culture, and he was angered by Jandamara's desertion. As a punishment, he had a warrant drawn up, charging him with sheep theft. Moving back into his spirit country, amongst Bunuba men, who had largely kept clear of the pastoral stations, he was tutored in his own culture by these elders, including Elamara. A revered Bonaba man who had first resisted white incursion, coming to the attention of the authorities early on. As well as a fierce and respected warrior, Alamara was an expert hunter and a highly charismatic leader of his people, with open contempt for the settlers and the police who came into his country. He would undertake stock raids and continue to disturb the incomers when he could. He had been captured three years earlier, but had escaped from Roburn and become an esteemed example of defiance and resistance to his people. Jandamara now came under his influence, and was happy to emulate him, joining in with stock raids. Lucan had already charged him with stock theft. Why not make the charge a reality? But before Jandamura had completed the long process of cultural learning to elevate him to manhood, some black trackers Jandamara knew came onto country and tricked him into taking them back to his camp. There both he and Alamara, along with a few other Bunimu men, were captured and forced to walk in heavy chains to Derby, where they were all incarcerated. Some prisoners were flogged and treated very harshly, and most were forced to work on a chain gang around the region. But Jandamara, with many useful skills, was drafted into the police service there managing and tending the police horses. He was housed there too, away from the prison, becoming quite the pet of the police and the Derby residents in the nearly two years that he spent there. But what was most devastating about his capture and the time spent at Derby was that his crucial cultural instruction was then interrupted. And he was never to fully return to his initiations, never to fully comprehend some of the important cultural laws and taboos, or to be accepted as a fully-fledged Boonaba man amongst his people. This was a very damaging loss for Jandamara, and it led to a great deal of grief for him when he was released. When he returned to the familiar camps around the Leonard River Station, they were full of regional Aboriginal people now living in a greatly reduced state, relying on the largesse of the station owners, particularly the women, who were often forced into submissive relationships with the station-hands by their lack of personal agency in this environment. Jandamara was an attractive and charismatic young man, and in that disordered social environment around him, he soon became notorious for his promiscuity. But of more concern to his people was his tendency to ignore the cultural taboos, which should have ensured he did not sleep with women of the wrong skin. Now skin names are one of the primary cultural kinship foundations. To describe it simply, it's a term used to describe how people relate to one another, as well as their roles, responsibilities and obligations. Skin names identify people, sort of working in a similar way to a surname in identifying each individual. They inform how the people are linked to one another and define the relationships that are acceptable. Unlike the system of using a surname though, an individual won't have the same skin name as their parents, nor would a husband and wife share the same skin name, for example. But adherence to these laws were particularly important. Jandamara, either not fully aware of the taboos or not sufficiently respecting the customary restrictions, had been sleeping with women of the wrong skin for him, and his actions both offended and endangered his people, and for this behaviour he was banished from their camps. This was a devastating punishment, to be cast out by one's own people. His incomplete initiation had put him in a very precarious and isolated place, existing on the edges of his country. And it was around this time that he formed a relationship with another man, a white stockman named Bill Richardson, from Forrester's Limalura station. Richardson had come to Halls Creek in the Kimberley in 1886 looking for gold, though, like most prospectors, he failed to make a lucrative find. But, as a self-contained, sober and reflective man, undaunted by the vast distances and the solitary lifestyle, he stayed on in the region, taking a job as a boundary rider. Surprisingly, in 1892 in Derby, Richardson had married the only white woman in the area. You can't help but think the whole arrangement must have been a complete debacle, because while he was a quiet, sober man, she was well known, well, except to him perhaps, as a promiscuous, rowdy, troublesome drunkard, and predictably she continued on with her affairs and raucous lifestyle immediately after their marriage. Richardson was apparently deeply humiliated by the whole affair, and after they inevitably separated, he was keen to return to the anonymity and solitude of a station life. Afterwards, his poor alcoholic wife became such a problem in Derby, she was removed to the south, to the Fremantle Women's Industrial Institution there. Imagining the loner Richardson, a bit of a laughingstock amongst his own white society, and Jan de banished by his clan for disrespectful behaviour, you can see how a close friendship could have developed. Despite the vast chasm between their respective cultures, they had both experienced being outcast and somewhat lonely. And both enjoyed the work that allowed them to roam the vast expanses of the stock runs. As part of his station duties though, Richardson would sometimes have been required to ride out with other station staff and police to track and arrest Aboriginals that were deemed to have broken the law. With local knowledge and Kimberley Bush skills, and having worked with many of the local Aboriginal station hands, men like Richardson were an attractive target for recruiting into the local police district. When it was suggested he actually joined the police in the area the lucrative pay offered for doing work he was sometimes doing anyway probably encouraged him to take up the offer after some training in perth he returned in may of 1894 and took a post at the leonard river police camp quite close to Limalora station where he had worked previously Native police assistants were essential to the success of policing in the region. It was desirable to bring black trackers and troopers in from outside the area to reduce the likelihood that your native police would go native. (sighs) But the Boonapa and other peoples in the Kimberley were pretty fierce, and many Aboriginals recruited from elsewhere feared working in the Kimberley area. If local men were used, their potential for disloyalty to the service was a constant worry. Each white trooper was assigned two native assistants, but it was important to recruit men who would stay loyal to the white police. You just had to hope that you'd chosen well. But in Richardson's case, he had already formed a strong personal relationship with Jandamara, lately working together at Limalura Station. When he moved into the nearby Leonard River police camp, Jandamara went with him, in an unofficial capacity, as a companion rather than an official native police assistant. So, the force only assigned him one black trooper to make up the three. From a different language group to Jandamara, the assigned trooper was called Captain. He was born in Broome and had worked with the whites in the pearling industry there, before being recruited into the police force when he was imprisoned on Rocknest Island. Richardson probably felt more secure in the loyalty of his two indigenous companions than most other white policemen. While Peterson suggests Jandamara's personal attachment to Richardson at that time, and being ostracised from his own people, ensured his continued loyalty, he suggests that Captain was so traumatised by the experience of the dungeons on Rottnest Island that he was a broken man, subjugated into unquestioning obedience. Peterson reminds us that no Boonapa people had worked with the police since Elamara cooperated with them in 1893 during what is known in Bunuba oral history as The Killing Time, which is considered to cover the years between 1889 and 1905. Alamara cooperated with the police in 93 to mediate the violent confrontations taking place and to try and protect his people, encouraging them to move further into the parts of the country that the sheep were not yet occupying for their own safety. Of course, that didn't work for long, as the pastoralists just kept on expanding the grazing land they required, and in the end, there was no place left to retreat to. But Jandamara's association with Richardson was quite different. Jandamara was not managing a relationship with the authorities that was intended to protect his people. He was simply drifting into another role of companionship with his friend from the station, riding with him on patrol, and those patrol areas just happened to straddle Boonaba country, But the work Richardson now had to do regularly was often a problem for Jandamarra, as I think we can all imagine. Richardson now worked exclusively with the rest of the machine that was killing, capturing and expelling local Aboriginals, and clearing out the land for grazing. Jandamarra must be complicit in these acts of brutality too, if he was working with Richardson. The crunch really came when a team led by Richardson captured the elusive and influential important man, Alamara, Jandamara's uncle and cultural tutor. Arrested for killing two sheep, they gave him a severe flogging at the Leonard River station before he was then sent on to Derby to serve three years in prison. While Jandamara had worked with Richardson in bringing him in, the brutal flogging clearly disturbed him, and he took off into the hills for a while until Richardson and Captain returned alone from Derby, back to their police outpost. Jandamara was still, at that time, willing to stand by Richardson, though. There was an incident where they were bringing another lot of prisoners in, and at some point they managed to overpower Richardson. Jandamara ran in and rescued him, subduing the prisoners and ensuring they did not escape. So for some time he was certainly complicit in the capture and incarceration of his own countrymen and was perfectly loyal to Richardson, at their expense. But it is possible Jandamara had more trouble ignoring the plight of the important elder, Alamara. Alamara would have commanded his respect. He had been an important and influential mentor to him in his initiations, before their relationship was broken up by incarceration and his spell in the police service in the years prior. Now, thanks to Richardson, Alamara was again incarcerated in Derby. There he had appeared to be a model prisoner, but once again, to the embarrassment of the police, he had escaped when the opportunity arose. The humiliated jailers were amazed to hear that Richardson, on his way in with another group of prisoners, had stumbled across Alimurra at large and had recaptured him. But by the time Richardson's party actually arrived in Derby, Alamura had done it again. He'd broken the padlock that had him tied to the chained captives, and he'd scarpered, Alamara was becoming the Houdini of the Kimberley, and his stature rose with each defined episode, becoming stronger, smarter, and more magical to his people, with each episode an embarrassment for the police. In that last instance, escaping from Richardson's prisoner convoy, we might speculate that Jandamara may have had a hand in helping him break that lock. If so, the predicament of divided loyalties that Jandamara was now in might have been anticipated by a sensitive person, But apparently Richardson was not that person, and he appears not to have seen the potential for trouble ahead. Now, we will need to take a break in Jandamara's story at this point. This episode has become much longer than I intended, and so I'm breaking it into two parts, and I'll complete and release the second part straight away. If you have time to continue listening, the story of Jandamara and his people resumes in the next episode and we'll follow on immediately from this point in the story. I'll also move this month's podcast recommendations to the end of that part two. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon. Cheers.